You see, God wants you to erase the old tapes, the old messages that formed in your life before you were saved. And he wants to rewrite those messages with new truth, dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in Romans 6, verses 3 to 11, in a message entitled, How to Really Change. As we pick up, Pastor Brogy gives an illustration from another book of the Bible to help explain the concept in Romans 6 that believers are no longer slaves of sin because sin has been rendered powerless in their bodies. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is describing the makeup of a typical church. And he says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise among you, not many mighty, there are not many noble. He says, God has made the foolish things. Uh, God has chosen the foolish things of this world. He is... Uh, he has not chosen the wise things of this world, the noble things of this world. Now, he doesn't say there's not any mighty, any noble, any wise. He just says there's not many. And when you look at the complexion of a true Bible-believing church, typically, it is not filled with all the mighty uppity-ups of this world. It's not because God is a respecter of person and doesn't love rich people or famous people. He loves everyone. But very often, people in their fame and their notoriety and their wealth and their position get so caught up in it, they think they're a big shot and they don't need God. That's why Jesus says it's harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to go through the eye, literally, Luke says, a surgical needle. They said, then how can anyone be saved? Well, with God, all things are possible. And so he says, God has chosen the base things of the world and the despised things of the world. God has chosen the things that are not so that he might nullify, there it is, karta ghetto, that he might render inoperative, that he might render insignificant the things that are. And so when a mighty, noble, wealthy person comes to Christ, in God's eyes he is rendered insignificant. Just like any of you were rendered significant, whether you're noble or not. Because grace has a leveling effect. It shows us that we're all equal. That's when racism melts. When a church preaches the grace of God like this church. What a diverse group. Why? Because racism says I'm better than you. But when you understand grace, you understand the ground is level at the cross. Let me see if I can illustrate this word, kartageo, made powerless. When my wife and I first got married, I drove her around in my 1972 Volkswagen Bug. It had no air conditioning. We got married in June, a very hot time of the year. It was a hot summer, 1980. One of the hottest on records. Hundreds of people all across America died from heat stroke. The day we got married, it was 104 degrees. We came back from our honeymoon and we had to drive to Colorado to be at a meeting with Campus Crusade for Christ and it was hotter. It was 110 when we left. I get kind of excited about that, you know, man, it's hot, this is great, you know. 113. 
We're riding through this little hole-in-the-wall town in Tennessee. It's 117 degrees. It was hot. Neither did that car, for that matter, have a gas gauge that was operative. Now, I had a 59 Volkswagen once, and when you ran out of gas in that car, there was a little pedal down on the floor, and you could kick it, and it hit in the reserve gas tank, and you'd go another 30, 40 miles until you hopefully find a gas station. Well, one night, my wife and I are out on a date, and she says, don't we need some gas? And I said, no, we're just fine. We're not going to run out of gas. And we went shopping here and there. We went to eat. We're heading back home. She says, uh, don't we need to get some gas? I said, honey, we're, we're, we're fine. We're, we're, we're just fine. I know how far this car can go. And we're coming up to the top of the hill, and it begins to crest right at the top. We go, and it was dead. And I threw it in neutral, and we just coasted all the way down that hill right into a 7-Eleven gas station. Isn't it amazing that God gives us these helpmates for the reason he does? Jerry Clower used to say, ain't God good? Yes, he was good that day. Now, it was chugging along, but suddenly it was made inoperative. It was cartargeo. Now, it wasn't done away with, destroyed in the sense that it didn't exist. We're still sitting in it. Think about your sin nature as that car. You're sitting in it but it's been made inoperative. What's the last thing you want to do with that sin nature? The last thing you want to do is put gas in it. When we come to Romans 13, 14, he'll say, make no provision for the flesh, speaking of the sin nature, in regards to its lust. You don't feed the sin nature. You now have a choice where you can starve the sin nature. My son living in Boston yesterday sent me an article and it was entitled WWJB, not WWJD, what would Jesus do, but what would Jesus brew, WWJB. And it's an Episcopal church where the pastor and the music minister were really concerned. Attendance was dropping, very, very small. And so they decided that they would do home brew. And they began to invite people into the community for a weekly gathering of home brew. You bring your home brew, we'll make it together, we'll see whose beer is the best. What would Jesus brew? Now listen, we are to starve the sin nature. And I'm disappointed with Mark Driscoll. I know he has the gospel, and for that I thank God. But this national pastor, who's now telling young people, it's okay to drink. And let me talk to the teenagers for a moment. You go on to the university, and if you choose not to drink, you are going to be an exception to the rule. And people under the name of freedom are going to say, man, we have freedom to drink. Now listen, for years and years, decades, the church taught abstinence. All of a sudden, we're so much more enlightened I abstained initially as a believer because it had the appearance of evil. It can cause a brother to stumble. And I don't believe with all my heart that in this day it glorifies God. Not to mention that God says not just don't get drunk, but he says don't use strong drink. What's strong drink? It was pure wine that had fermented in the New Testament area. It wasn't whiskey and vodka, so... He reads John 2, Mark Driscoll, and God convicts him that he ought to drink. I read John 2, and I'm convicted you shouldn't drink. That's the way it is. It will give you a buzz. And as soon as you have that buzz, you've had too much. 
Because you are to worship God with your whole heart, mind, and strength, the Bible says. No, they mixed it in Bible times. It was real wine. Sometimes oinosh yayin in the Hebrew can mean new wine, unfermented. Most often it means real wine. And when it was unmixed with water in a five-to-one ratio, it was called strong drink. And God says, apart from giving that to a dying man like you'd give morphine, don't ever touch it. People become alcoholics, if you want to call it that. Why? Because it's addictive. You don't feed the sin nature. You starve it. Now people tell me, well, Brogy, he's legalistic. I hear it often. heard it twice this week. Twice this week. Why don't they come to Community Bible Church? Well, that pastor didn't believe in drinking. My pastor, he'll sit down and have a glass of wine with me. God bless your pastor. We need to live differently. God has called us to be different from the world. And it's not being like the world that will win the world. It's our distinctiveness from the world that makes us real salt and real light. And Paul wants you to realize that that old sinful nature was made inoperative, but you don't want to put gas in it. You don't want to feed it. He says in verse 7, for he who has died is freed from sin. In other words, we no longer have to be slave to sins. Don't ever say, well, I'll never change. I've always been this way. The moment you begin to think that way, you're like putty in the devil's hands. He has you right where he wants you. No, God wants you to understand you now have a choice. You have been freed from the penalty and the power of sin. Verse 8, now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Not only hereafter, but now, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. He's reminding us that the power of sin being broken is not some temporary status, but it is a permanent status. And when you feel defeated and down and discouraged, don't forget that this is not some temporary state where God said, well, you can be freed from the power of sin for a month. It is as permanent as the resurrection of Christ as he was raised from the dead never to die again. He was not resuscitated from death like Lazarus. And we say he was resurrected from the dead. Lazarus, really not. He was resuscitated from death. He was dead with dead four days. But he didn't come out of the grave under his own power. And he didn't come out of the grave in a resurrected body. Christ is the first fruits. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, He is the first ever to come out in a resurrected body, never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. The resurrection assures that my emancipation proclamation will never, ever, ever, ever be rescinded. I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, this is all theory. I I still feel like I'm a slave to sin. Well, Paul is going to, again, put it into shoe leather for us. Beyond our new realization... We need to ponder our new consideration, our new consideration. Again, the first key word is the word know or knowing, found in verses 3, 6, and 9. The second key word is the word consider, found here in verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying in verse 11, think, consider, 
Some translations say reckon. Now in the South, we have a uh, colloquial form of the word reckon. Someone asks, do you think it's going to rain? And you say, well, I reckon it will, meaning I I think it will. But the word in the original has a whole lot more steel and concrete to it. This word reckon, consider in the NAS, legizomai, was a bookkeeping term that meant to put to one's account. And by the way, when you come to verse 11, it represents a turning point in the book of Romans. Because this is the very first time all the way in the book of Romans that Paul gives a command. For six and a half chapters, he's been explaining theology to us. But now for the first time, he commands us to do something. And I find it interesting, the very first time he gives a command, he commands us to think theologically. Consider this. Think about this. Legizomai, we got our word logic or logical from it. We refer to a a ship or an airplane's log to check on its progress. Even so, consider your progress. Consider wrecking yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, what does it mean to be dead to sin? Well, he's already helped us in verse 6 to understand this, that we are no longer slaves to sin, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. The thought is that we are freed from the control of sin. A freed slave can stand directly in front of his master and ignore every single order he spouts out at him if he so chooses. Even so, while you may not be out of the reach of sin in terms of its lure and its temptation, you are freed from the reign of sin. And so we're commanded to think about this, to think about it, to reckon it. Now, how does this work in practice? Well, think about how it works in other realms of the Christian life. Uh, maybe one day you're tempted to think, I, I feel unacceptable to God. And then you remember Romans 15 and verse 7. You say, well, that's not true. Therefore, accept one another how? Just as God also accepted us. God accepts me to the glory of God. Or maybe one day you say, I feel so inadequate. And then you remember 2 Corinthians 3. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything that's coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Or maybe you're tempted to think, I feel all alone in this life. And then you remember Romans 8, 38 and 39. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he promises never, ever, ever, ever to leave us or to forsake us. You say, well, I feel so unloved. And then you consider the truth of Ephesians 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. Or all of a sudden you feel afraid of the evil one of Satan. And then you consider 1 John 4, 4. You are chosen of God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so you are to consider, you are to reckon, you are to think on the fact that you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now this considering is not some form of make-believe, is not some form of positive thinking. God is not asking you to play some kind of word game in your mind. He is asking you to take your mind and to conform it and to calibrate it in accordance with his truth. You see, God wants you to erase the old tapes, the old messages, 
that formed in your life before you were saved. And he wants to rewrite those messages with new truth. Dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now let me ask you some questions. How do you know that you are forgiven? How do you know that you've been declared righteous? That you are not going to hell and you are on your way to heaven? Because by faith, you took a promise like Acts 16, 31, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Or Romans 10, whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. And you reckoned it, you considered it by faith to be true. You did that for your justification. Now God wants you to do that this morning for your sanctification. You see, we're tempted to think sometimes, well, that's good for you, pastor. But you don't know me. You don't know my bad habits. And God says, I know everything about you. I know all of your bad habits. And he wants you to take this truth, first know it, then reckon it, consider it, consider it, think about it with all your heart and grab it. Suppose I have a slave and I have a master. Or suppose I'm a slave and I have a master and then I die. And the master is over the coffin and he says, tote that hay, get that wood, retrieve that water. I can't do anything. I'm dead. I'm dead. That master has no power over me because I am dead. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You now have a choice. You still have your fallen sinful nature, but your obedience to it is not mandatory, it's voluntary. And God wants you to consider a new truth. He wants to rewrite the message in your mind and heart. So there's a new realization we must have. There's something we must know and there's a new consideration. There's something we, we must reckon. The third word is equally important. They all go together, but we'll have to come back to that next week. All right, now, our time has slipped away, so let's see if we can apply the text of Scripture. How are we going to apply what we've learned today? Number one, first remember that casual thought is not the same as deep thought. Casual thought is not the same as deep thought, and I might add, casual thought never brought any real life change. It doesn't change your life. Now remember who's Paul's audience is. In Romans 1, he's writing to all who are beloved of God in Rome, believers, saints by calling. They're holy ones. They've been saved, declared righteous. You see, it's possible to know enough to be justified without having thought enough to further be sanctified. And Paul knows that there are some truths that we must know, some truths that we really must think about, get into our minds if they're ever going to seep out into our lives and change us. And so there's a lot of folks who have a rudimentary knowledge of what we're talking about this morning. And they're unwilling to really do and obey the command that God says this morning. Reckon this. Think on this. Consider this, because this is what I want you to do if your life is going to change. The psalmist says, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in it he meditates day and night, and he says he'll be like a tree 
firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and whatever he does, he's going to prosper. Meditate on it. If I could think for you this week, I would, but I can't. Casual thought will not change your life. This is a command. Secondly, Satan does not care how much of the Bible we learn just as long as we don't live it. He doesn't care how much of the Bible you learn just as long as you don't live it. Ephesians 6, 6 says we're to do the will of God from the heart. And Satan knows that academic truth is not the same as putting truth into action. Years ago, I preached through the epistle of James. I, I need to do it again sometimes. And I emphasize the importance of not just learning the Word of God, but applying the Word of God. And if you remember, I, I warned you that it's very easy to think that you are a spiritual person, James reasons, because of what you know. There's a lot of Christians who are on some kind of spiritual high. They think they are really spiritual because they go to all these conferences and they read all these books and listen to all these preachers, but they don't apply it. And James says, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he is. James is saying, you don't need to be an auditor of the word, you need to be a doer of the word. And the man who just audits truth is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror. And there are two words for man in the Bible. One is anthropos. We get our word anthropology from it. It refers to men and women alike, to mankind. And then there's the word arnair. That means a man in deference to a woman. He says we're not to be like a man, an arnair, who looks in the mirror. Don't look into the Word of God the way, a the way a man looks into a mirror. Look into the Word of God the way a woman looks in a mirror. Now women, when they look into the mirror, they look. And we appreciate it as men, except when we're out in the driveway waiting for them, you know? You know how long it took me to get dressed this morning? I can get up, shower, shave, put my contacts on, put my suit on in about eight minutes. Now you know how long it took my wife to get ready? You've got your answer here from James. Now, when I walk out, I, sometimes I've got to make sure my zipper's up, my shirt's buttoned, there's no shaving cream on my ear. That's James' point. We need to look into the Word of God the way a woman looks into a mirror, where she doesn't leave the mirror until she's totally satisfied that everything is in order. And some Christians hear and read and study the Word of God, and they just glance at it, and that's a major mistake. He says, for once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. And so James is telling us that just to glance is not going to change you. You need to see and look and remember. You need to let God speak to you. You know, there's two ways to discover what you look like. One is to look up, look at, a, say, a touched-up photograph where it can look good. You know, my, my wife wanted to post something, and I said, honey, don't put that on. I don't look good in that picture. She said, oh, let me fix it. And she goes on the computer. She crops this, fixes this, changes the color. And I said, how about this? Said, that looks good, man. I look pretty good. <laughs> now, that's one way to look at yourself. It's somewhat deceptive, though. 
No, we're to look in the mirror of God's word and see all the blemishes. And so some Christians glance, and because they only glance, they quickly forget. But one, he says, who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become effectual here, but a forgetful here, but an effectual doer, he'll be blessed in what he says. You need to wait and look until you say, no, I've heard from you, God. That verse has my name all over it. That's what God wants to do. There's three key words here in Romans that we're going to explore. No, there's something you need to realize. There's something you need to consider. And as we'll see next time, there's a presentation you must make. But I fear that by the time we're done with Romans 6 through 8, that some of us will be no more holy, no more like Christ, no more understanding of these principles to grow up. See, the plan of salvation is so simple, a, a little child can understand it. But the plan of sanctification, look, if I could think for you, I would, but I can't. You have to dig into God's word. And some of us, if someone asks us tomorrow, what is the sermon about? You couldn't tell them if your life depended on it. It's because you just casually glance. You've got all the time in the world for Facebook and a hundred other social media networks. But you don't have time for God in His Word. And you wonder why you're such a babe and your life doesn't change. You can come into my office and whine and complain. And I will help you and I will listen to you and I will be patient with you. But if you don't do what God says, you're not going to change. And you can't blame anybody else. You can't blame your spouse, your employer, or anyone else. You've got to take responsibility for yourself. And let me just say in closing, without a relationship with Christ, all of this is impossible. Can't even begin. You say, well, how do I start that? Well, let me just give you the short version of the Bible. In the Bible, there's one problem. It's called sin. There's one villain. His name is Satan. There's one hero. His name is Jesus Christ. And there's one purpose. It's the glory of God. And if you will recognize today that you are a sinner and you need a Savior, Christ Jesus receives sinful man. Man, he came into the world to save sinners and he'll save you if you will come in humility and faith. Let's bow in prayer. Now, our Father, we thank you this morning for the word of God, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Thank you for those who come who have an appetite for it, who hunger for it, who long for it. I'm so grateful to you that you've given me so many people like that, but some who are bored and asleep and can't stand it. God, you deal with them. I can't. Help someone else here today, Father, who has never received Jesus as Lord. May they in simple, childlike faith say, Lord Jesus, save me. And help those of us, O oh God, that have been saved. To take the command that you've told us to think theologically, to consider, to reckon. The truth, help us think long and hard on it, that we now have a new choice. And as we unfold these chapters, help us to understand how this choice will be made real in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. For a copy of today's study from Romans 6, entitled, 
How to Really Change? Call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and request program ROM28. You can also listen to it online at searchthescriptures.org or download our Search the Scriptures app from the iTunes Store or Android Marketplace. Tomorrow we continue our look at how to really change. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.